Well, greetings to each one of you this afternoon. We appreciate you uh, coming out to probe more of God's insights as it relates to creation science. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of order, a God of love, a God of insight, and a God who's willing to take us right where we're at and give us your insights and your truth. Father, we believe we're living in serious times. We need a clear testimony, not only as to the Bible, but as to science and the times in which we live. Please continue to bless us as we study. Give us divine insight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you measure success? Physicians like case studies. And so I wanted to give you a case study and see if it looks like a picture of success to you. These are true descriptions of one leader of God's people. He was very capable, respected, both within and outside the church. He was tolerant of opposing views, responsible for impressive capital improvements. And in fact, if we're looking at success, he was actually regarded as successful by both non-believers as well as by church members. And in fact, you might say none of that is too important, but you, when you realize he was spiritually minded, does this sound like the description of a successful individual? Well, here is an archaeologist speaking on this famous biblical figure, William Deaver. Some of you know that name, one of the foremost American archaeologists. In fact, Dr. Deaver's collection of artifacts is, uh, I think, in its entirety pretty much, is housed at Southern University because of the close relationship he had and still has, I'm assuming, with Michael Hassel. Here's what he wrote about this individual. He was one of Israel's most capable rulers to judge from both the impressive remains he has left us as well as the respect accorded to him and his dynasty by his Assyrian enemies. Who are we speaking about? King Ahab. Here's another archaeologist. Christian archaeologist. He writes, although Ahab was evil in God's eyes, he had probably become the most powerful king the northern kingdom had yet known. King Ahab, we tend to relegate him in most Christian circles to someone who is just a bad guy. But if we were living during Ahab's day, it's very possible we would have attributed to him great success. Ahab uh, built an impressive Acropolis there in Samaria, which was his capital. Some have said it even rivaled some of Solomon's building projects. He had great waterworks constructed, like the Hatsor Water Tunnel. And in fact, the Bible speaks of his ivory house in 1 Kings 22:39. 39 
Look what it says here. The rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he made and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So from many measures, Ahab was a picture of success. But we know the biblical account. He was not someone that we would ever hope our children would emulate or that we would ever want anyone to compare us to, would we? But the amazing thing about Ahab and his accomplishments and his record is that to me it sounds strikingly similar to the things that we value in Christianity today and even in Seventh-day Adventist circles. Because Ahab, his reign, it seems looking at it objectively, was one that initially was characterized by what many people would describe as love and tolerance. And you say, well, that doesn't seem to fit Ahab and Jezebel. But stop for a minute and think about that great challenge that Ahab was given and the whole people of Israel on Mount Carmel by Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, he said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In what kind of context does such a call make sense? Is this a people that were saying they had rejected God, that we don't want anything to do with Yahweh, the, the creator God? Is that what they were saying? This was a people that had what I would describe as a sort of postmodern view of the world. You know, everything's okay. Everything, you know, yeah, we love God. We, we follow Yahweh, but we also follow the contemporary, prevailing mindset of how things came to be. You know, we take a little bit of Baal worship and a little bit of worship of Yahweh. Now, some of you might think that's a stretch. But there's actually evidence, both biblically and in the spirit of prophecy, as well as in archaeology, that this is actually the truth. Because if you look at the context of Elijah's ministry, after he gave that solemn warning to Ahab that there will not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. As Ellen White describes the situation, she says, a year after that proclamation passed, there was still no rain. And in Prophets and Kings, she goes on to describe Jezebel's reaction to that one-year drought. She says, Jezebel utterly refused to recognize the drought as a judgment from Jehovah. Urged on by the queen, Ahab instituted a most diligent search for the hiding place of the prophet, but the search was in vain. Failing in her efforts against Elijah, Jezebel determined to avenge herself by slaying all the prophets of Jehovah in Israel. Not one should be left alive. The infuriated woman carried out her purpose in the massacre of many of God's servants. And of course, you know that Obadiah, governor of Ahab's household, secreted many of those uh, prophets away in a couple of caves uh, sparing their lives. But this profound act, this massacre instituted by Jezebel, indicates actually that something had been going on prior to that, that Yahweh's prophets, his adherents, were given free reign up until that time. An amazing archaeological discovery has been found many miles from what was then the kingdom of Israel, 
Kuntalet Ajrud is an ancient caravan stop, which would be in southern Judah as opposed to the northern realm of Israel. And there, archaeologists have found an amazing inscription and drawing. You might not be able to see it very clearly here, but when it's outlined, it emerges quite clearly what we're looking at. And especially when you read the inscription that goes along with it, it's quite illuminating as to the times. I bless you by Yahweh of Samaria and by his Asherah. The Asherah were these fertility goddesses, these Canaanite goddesses, and the wooden idols that represented them. So this inscription that dates back to the time of Ahab is giving us an illumination to what was happening among God's people. They had become assimilated in many ways to the people around them, and they were incorporating prevailing views of nature. That's what Baal was all about, right? Nature worship. Into their worship of the true God, Yahweh, the I Am. To us, this may sound striking, but I'm showing you this as we look at creation science because the Bible tells us that in the last days, as the Old Testament is closing, we read about that Elijah message coming again. And we as Seventh-day Adventists have connected the end-time message that God gives to his people with this Elijah message. And I would like to suggest to you the setting of that Elijah message is indeed a setting that has parallels, great parallels, to what we're dealing with today. And so it's very relevant that Elijah would say something like, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So what do you think? Do you come from a place where love and religious tolerance are highly valued? You know, as we speak about creation science and reading Genesis 1 through 10, just like it's written, I hear opponents saying things like this. You're undermining the unity of the church to insist on a literal reading of Genesis 1 to 10, you're undermining unity. You're not being loving and tolerant. Have you heard that before? The details of creation week. These are all, these are not direct quotes from anyone, but this idea, the details of creation week are not important. Christ tells us they'll know us by our love, not by our biblical precision. Sounding familiar perhaps. How about this one? Instead of focusing on aspects of the Bible over which many Christians disagree, we should avoid divisions and help make our church open and welcoming to every man and woman. Well, our church should be open and welcoming, shouldn't it? But is that in contrast to focusing on Bible truth, whether Christians agree with it or not? What was the message of Elijah? How long halt you between two opinions? 
And so the picture of Ahab's reign is one that many, I believe today, if they didn't know who we were talking about, they would say Ahab is a model leader of God's people. This whole practice of pulling in, of joining things together, this whole postmodern era that embraces this syncretism of connecting different philosophies is extremely dangerous. Listen to how Ellen White then applies this to the subject matter that we're looking at today. Through the influence of Jezebel and her impious priests, the people were taught that the idol gods that had been set up were deities ruling by their mystic power the elements of earth, fire, and water. All the bounties of heaven, the running brooks, the streams of living water, the gentle dew, the showers of rain which refresh the earth and cause the fields to bring forth abundantly were ascribed to the favor of Baal and Ashtoreth instead of to the giver of every good and perfect gift. The people forgot that the hills and valleys, the streams and fountains were in the hand of the living God, that he controlled the sun, the clouds of heaven, and all the powers of nature. What had happened under the prevailing influence of the culture of that day is people had forgotten to ascribe to God the glory that was due to him as creator and sustainer. And so the end result really is robbing God of his glory, isn't it? And so when we hear that end time message that you've been looking at already, if you've been in this seminar, in Revelation 14, 7, fear God and give glory where? To him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Creator worship is at the heart of the end time book of Revelation. Do you know that scholars who've looked at the structure of the book of Revelation tell us that in that structure, it's called a chiastic structure, some of you have studied this, the high point in a chiastic structure is in the middle of a book. And when they look at the structure of the book of Revelation, they say the focus of this chiasm, chiasm actually comes from the Greek letter chi, which is like an X. And so where the X intersects, right in the middle, that's the focus. It's the high point of the book. They look at Revelation, they say the focus is the three angels' messages. And when you look at the center of those three angels' messages, the focal point of it is worshiping God as creator. There's a focal point in the Old Testament, too, that uh, actually focuses in on God as creator. And we call it the Ten Commandments, right? The center at the heart of the Ten Commandments is worshiping God as creator. In fact, Revelation 14, 7 is almost a direct quote of Exodus 20, 11. And giving the reason for why we should keep the Sabbath, God is the creator of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and in Exodus, all that in them is. In Revelation 14, and the fountains of waters. Listen a little bit more to this application. And the reason I'm taking some time with this, if it's not becoming clear, is I want to cast a picture. But before I do, I just want you to see the connection a little bit more clearly. Again, 
from the spirit of prophecy, this time Conflict and Courage, page 210. Though in a different form, idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. So is this a stretch to connect Baal worship with prevailing sentiments in Christianity today, is it? No, I mean, we have it on good authority. Inspiration right here. The God of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished, fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is little better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. No error, she goes on, next paragraph, no error accepted by the Christian world strikes more boldly against the authority of heaven. None is more pernicious in its results than the modern doctrine so rapidly gaining ground that God's law is no longer binding upon men. Now you say, okay, well, we're talking about Baal worship and Elijah's day, and she's making a connection there. What does this have to do with God's law? The Bible is within the reach of all, but there are few who really accept it as the guide of life. Infidelity prevails to an alarming extent, not in the world merely, but in the church. Many have come to deny doctrines which are the very pillars of the Christian faith. Now, she's going to go on and enumerate what some of those doctrines are, but where do you think the spirit of prophecy goes when paralleling our day with Elijah's day, our day with the Baal worship that had been incorporated, if you will, into the church? Where do you think she starts? With pillars of the Christian faith. The great facts of creation. The great facts of creation. She's listing these pillars as presented by the inspired writers. The fall of man. Where do you read about the fall of man? Genesis 3. The atonement. Of course, the foundation for the atonement, the prophecy of the atonement. Genesis 3, and of course, continuing throughout the Bible. And the perpetuity of the law of God are practically rejected, either wholly or in part by a large share of the professedly Christian world. Thousands who pride themselves upon their wisdom and what? Independence. Regard it as an evidence of weakness to place implicit confidence in the Bible. Who is it in the Christian world or even in the Adventist church that's questioning a simple reading of the Genesis account? Who is it? Yeah, it's, it's people that, that have a lot more knowledge than most of us. Okay, the polished ones. They think it a proof of superior talent and learning to cavil, to mock, to make fun of the scriptures, and to spiritualize and explain away their most important truths. Many ministers are teaching their people, and many professors and teachers are instructing their students that the law of God has been changed or abrogated. And those who regard its requirements as still valid to be literally obeyed are thought to be deserving of what? Only ridicule or contempt. I mean, what kind of a joke was it when Elijah first showed up in Ahab's court? I mean, do you think anyone really took it seriously that it wasn't going to 
rain or have any dew except by this guy's word? Maybe there was something very impressive about Elijah's manner. Maybe they knew his prophet's garb. Maybe they connected the dots and were very fearful to begin with. But I think most people must have said, you know, this guy's just out of touch, out of touch. He wasn't very politically correct either, was he? Think about this. We speak about the change of God's law. By rejecting the literal six-day creation week, which is at the heart of God's law and at the heart of the three angels' messages, what are you doing? Do those who embrace evolution over eons of time, are they really undermining the fourth commandment? Are they undermining the Adventist message and the first angel's message in particular? Well, you know, we don't have to go to Adventist sources of inspiration. Not that God gave the spirit of prophecy just for Adventists. But, you know, many people want to relegate Ellen White to just being someone who is giving messages for the Adventist church. You well know that God worked through her powerfully to reach the world through things like the Conflict of the Ages series and Steps to Christ and other works that were designed to be given large distribution outside of our church. We could add Ministry of Healing and other books to that list. But if you just look at the biblical account, there is no way to take the position of long ages of evolution. And I know some of you have already been studying this, have been talking about it, have been pondering it already at this convocation. But if you haven't seen this book, Creation, Catastrophe, and Calvary, series of articles by different uh, Adventist scholars, it's an excellent resource. And in chapter two, the late Gerhard Hassel writes an amazing biblical defense of the literal creation week. Um, just argument after argument, nailing down how no one can take the Bible at face value and say that we're talking about long ages. Look at his summary. The author of Genesis 1 could not have produced more comprehensive and all-inclusive ways to express the idea of a literal day than the ones chosen. And then he goes on, he summarizes things that he's been writing about in this chapter. The complete lack of indicators such as prepositions, qualifying expressions, construct phrases, semantic syntactical connections, and so on, indicates we cannot possibly take the designation day in the creation week to be anything other than what? A regular 24-hour day. Ellen White told us that Satan is constantly pressing in the spurious, the false, to lead away from the truth. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect what? The testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there's no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. What I'd like to suggest to you is even though the Bible is abundantly clear on this subject, 
that in the Seventh-day Adventist church today, Moses is not around to defend himself. Are you aware of that? Not only is Moses not around, but the Bible is written in Hebrew. And uh, although I've, you know, read some lexicons and things, I can't even read the Hebrew script. Hey, I can, you know, look things up, as many of you have done, and you can say, well, this word seems to mean this, and here's other places it's used. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So it seems easy for someone to come to a church, a Christian church, or even an Adventist church, with long letters after their name, there's something beside MD and MPH like I have that doesn't necessarily give me much credibility when it comes to Hebrew exegesis. And they can say, well, the Hebrew really teaches this. You see? And they can say, well, this is what the world view was in the time of Moses. And many people can think this is, wow, this is really scholarly. I'm so glad I'm hearing this. My mind is being opened. But there's a problem. Because there was someone who wrote, not in Hebrew, but in English. And wrote not thousands of years ago, but relatively recently. And her name was Ellen White. And so although it seems easy to twist the Bible, even though if you're honest with the text, Dr. Hassel makes it compellingly clear that if you're going to be honest with the text, you're talking 24-hour days in Genesis 1. But if you want to try to twist things, you can say, oh, yes, I believe the Bible, and you just don't know quite as much as I do. And, but here's the problem. You start reading things like this in Third Spiritual Gifts, page 91. But the infidel supposition, what is an infidel? Unfaithful, someone who doesn't have faith. The infidel supposition that the events of the first week required seven vast, indefinite periods for their accomplishment strikes directly at the foundation of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. It makes indefinite and obscure that which God has made very plain. Listen to what she calls this view. She says it is the worst kind of infidelity. How can that be? The worst kind of lack of faith? She says, for with many who profess to believe the record of creation. You see, they're saying, yes, I believe in the biblical account. But, you know, I've had a lot of education, you know, and it, you know, we know it didn't happen in six literal days. It was, you know, eons and eons. We all know that. Ellen White pulls back the curtain. She says, it's what? It's infidelity in disguise. Well, how do you disguise infidelity? Yeah, you say, I have faith. I'm a person of faith. I believe the Bible. But you know what? It really doesn't mean what it said. Now, I have great sympathy for people that have been sucked into this kind of thinking because I was not raised a Seventh-day Adventist and was raised with an evolutionary worldview and uh, heard how the Bible was just a bunch of fables. And as a young adult, I was an agnostic. I mean, it's a pretty logical decision. I mean, 
how, why would you want to trust something that's just a storybook? I'm thankful that God got my attention and showed me the truth of his word. But the point is, I'm, it's very easy in this prevailing mentality to get caught up in this concept. And when you do, you see what happens. Because it ends up, Ellen White says in Third Spiritual Gifts, it charges God with commanding men to observe the week of seven literal days in commemoration of seven vast indefinite periods, which is unlike his dealing with mortals and is an impeachment of his wisdom. Do you see how the very character of God is at stake and what's being discussed in Christian circles in the umbrella, under the umbrella of creation science? Why I believe it's so critical that we talk about this, because I think every single one of us is being called today as part of a mission to restore this great truth, which has largely been lost in Adventist churches. I was thinking about it not all that long ago at how many times that I've heard in the Adventist church a sermon speaking about creation science or a, or a seminar, some kind of meeting. And, um, you know, maybe there's a few special meetings that I'm forgetting. But it's not something that is talked about in most Adventist churches, at least where I've been. Maybe you come from different congregations. Maybe because this, air, this subject is being agitated more, it's getting more visibility from the pulpit. About a year ago, maybe a little longer than that, maybe a couple years, I got involved with doing creation science seminars. And uh, I want to tell you that I'm not someone who's deeply steeped in all the creation science. You know, it's, this is not the main avocation in my life. I'm not a, you know, PhD in paleobiology like Dr. Jensen, who sits here in our audience. Um, but, um, you know, I realized as I started doing work in the church with this, how misguided many of our people are. I mean, there were long-time Seventh-day Adventists that were like astounded. They were saying, you mean the earth isn't really millions and millions of years old? The things haven't just evolved? Or, I mean, I, you know, I, like they'd never heard anything like this before. And so something that we think is obvious is a huge issue in many Adventist congregations today. And what a good Adventist, if they're going to watch viewing fair on DVDs or on television, what do they watch? They watch nature programming, don't they? You know, beautiful things about nature. And of course, there's something about, you know, how this all evolved over millions and billions of years. And these things are just infiltrating the minds of God's people. So where this all starts, I, I hope that a number of you, if you're not already inspired to take some public advocacy of this. Now, not everyone is called to publicly advocate for this in, uh, you know, doing a seminar or something. But I believe a lot more of us are than would like to. And, and I'll, I'll give, make a confession here. 
Every time I do something on creation science, I feel unprepared. Because I always feel like there's a lot more material I'd like to pull together, and I don't know as much as I'd like, and I'd like to study more. But years ago, I had an experience as a young Adventist. I was invited to preach. And uh, when they invited me to preach, I said, you know, there's no way I can do that. I'm just too busy. Um, you know, I'm sorry. And I went to church that Sabbath. I don't remember what happened, but as I saw what transpired that morning, I have no recollection who was up front or what was going on. I just was so guilt-stricken because it seemed like a terrible mess that morning. It was like the Lord was saying, well, of course it's a mess. You were supposed to preach. <laughs> but I had no time. I was, you know, I'm not a theologian. I was a medical resident at the time, maybe a, co a college student at the time. And so, you know, after that, the Lord usually helps me to try to get somewhat excited about opportunities to share. And uh, even though the first time I did a creation science seminar, I said to my wife, you know, if I didn't think the Lord was leading in this, I would say I was totally crazy. You know, doing an intensive creation science seminar over a weekend, I'm glad that a lot of people lent me their materials, like uh, Sean Pittman and Tim Standish had materials that he let me use. And uh, in fact, all of those materials and, and more that people have shared with me, WYC got permission to put those on a CD and give them to you. So if you want to share some material, there's a lot of graphics and p things that you can use. Now you can't you know, sell them and make a, a business out of it, but since we're giving them out free, they've uh, allowed us to do that very graciously. So lots of great material. And we're, in the, most of my presentations, we're going to look at, at science rather than the biblical foundation. But you know what? I'm showing you this because as we begin, these three presentations I'm going to make, if you can't approach your church with the importance of this subject, the initial response of most churches is going to be, you know, this is too divisive. You know, and I mean, you're not really, you're not really qualified uh, to do something like this. I alluded this morning to uh, my two boys. I haven't been trying to train them to be creation science advocates, but you know, we study things together in the home and share together. And uh, I was working with a small church in San Jose doing a, a health-focused outreach for their community. So we rented a hotel. We had meetings there for the community on a variety of health subjects. And there were some spiritual connections there. And there were a couple of individuals, probably at least in their 40s, who ended up talking with my boys after the meetings. And I was kind of listening, overhearing the conversation a bit. And uh, they were talking about creation science and you know, the Bible and the authority of the Bible and how we could have confidence in the Bible. And uh, my boys told me afterward that one of them said to him, you know, when we go to different churches, we've, one of them had just visited the Adventist church for the first time. He said, they never want to talk about these things. You know, they're preachers and everything. But here you're just kids, and you're telling us all this stuff, and you know, and it makes sense. 
the Bible actually makes sense. You know, and God in his graciousness has allowed light to shine in the Bible through the spirit of prophecy and through science. And so in the rest of this presentation and uh, in my two presentations tomorrow, really our focus is going to be on the science. And so hopefully at this point, something is clear. And if it's not, I want to give you a medical illustration because I have some credibility as a physician. You know, we talk a lot in the church about love and sympathy, tolerance, but how does that interface with truth? You know, as a physician, think about it. Let's say, let me just give you a scenario here. Let's say a healthy man comes to see me. He says, Doc, you know, I haven't been to see a doctor in five or six years, very healthy, 58 years old, and, you know, I figured it would just be good to have a physical. And so I'm taking a history, no problems. I'm doing his physical exam. And let's say while I'm doing his exam, I feel a large, hard mass in his prostate. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this guy could have prostate cancer. But I mean, he was so happy, he's feeling good. I mean, do you think I should say anything to him? But let, let's, say, let, let's say I just I don't want to ruin his day, and I just say I'm not going to even mention this because we had drawn blood already and we're ordering one of those PSA tests, you know, that checks the blood level of this prostate-specific antigen. And I say, I'll see how that comes back. And it comes back very high. So I say, wow, should I call this guy? I mean, he felt so good. I mean, you know, he's going to think I'm a bad guy. I mean, I... I want to be a loving doctor. You know, I want people to say, you know, I'm like Jesus. You know, I'm kind and everything. Well, why is it that when we talk about Jesus, we never talk about when Jesus did some things that were a little bit more stern? I mean, was Jesus any less loving when he cleansed the temple than when he healed the leper? Was he? But you see, we have this idea that, you know, love and acceptance means we, we, we don't do anything that's that's divided, the people might take the wrong way. And so what would, you, what would you call a doctor that didn't tell his patients bad news, like cancer? Irresponsible? You probably wouldn't call him doctor for very long, right? Because they take his license away. There are some very perplexing medical problems that we have today. One of them is drug-resistant tuberculosis. You no doubt have heard some stories in the media about people maybe on planes who had drug-resistant tuberculosis and then they had to try to track down everyone on the plane. Uh, very contagious disease if someone actually has an active infection, they're coughing in an enclosed space like an airplane. How about a classroom? What would happen if a teacher, a, a well-esteemed teacher, had drug-resistant tuberculosis. And he just loved to teach, and his students loved him. And I was his doctor. And I realized he had drug-resistant tuberculosis. What should I do? Well, if I said something, what could happen to him? Yeah, he could, if he didn't lose his job, they'd pull him out of the classroom, right? They probably wouldn't just take his job away. They'd say, you gotta leave the classroom and get medical treatment. You see, if I don't quarantine that fellow, if the medical system doesn't get him away from people, if they don't put him on treatment, what's going to happen to him? 
he's going to die himself. Now, some even of these drug-resistant things, they get a whole combinations of things they might respond to or keep things in check. He'll also contaminate all his students. You know, and some of those students might die. I mean, what's the loving thing to do? Isn't it to remove that teacher, help him to get treatment so that he doesn't contaminate other students? I mean, maybe for a physician, some things look very cut and dry. That don't we talk about philosophy, right? But is it any different if we're dealing with spiritual health? We're dealing with serious, serious issues, aren't we? And we think that, you know, being loving and accepting trumps dealing with integrity when it comes to truth. Now, before we go away from this focus, it's kind of an integrating theme, I want to give you some balancing insights. Because the need to stand true on creation science for ourselves doesn't give us license to judge other people. You know, if you think about it, some of the great heroes in the Bible have erred in this subject, being too tolerant. Can you think of some people who were too tolerant in the Bible? Yeah, Aaron, right? At Mount Horeb there with the golden calf. I mean, Aaron is one of the heroes in the Bible. Yeah, Eli, we could think of. How about Jehoshaphat? I mean, Jehoshaphat's the one in 2 Chronicles 20 where he gives that powerful demonstration of faith. And we often quote 2 Chronicles 20 about the value of trusting God and his prophets. But Jehoshaphat entered into league with Ahab. I mean, how did he do that? What kind of environment was he living in? He was living in that environment where the Elijah message was needed, where even good people were getting sucked into this idea that somehow being loving and tolerant means you just look it. You want to believe that way about creation? That's fine. But don't, you know, don't bring it, don't talk about it in the church. You know, it's too divisive. Do you see? This is not the biblical approach. And yet even Paul, remember what happened with Paul? How he ended up being imprisoned was because of his desire to please his brethren, to going too far, the spirit of prophecy tells us, in accommodating the wishes of the early church leaders. So how has evolution gained its foothold in Christian circles? This is where we move into the science because Ellen White tells us exactly where the problem begins. In that passage in Third Spiritual Gifts, page 91 and 92, she says this, infidel geologists claim that the world is very much older than the Bible record makes it. They reject the Bible record because of those things which are to them evidences from the earth itself. Evidences that the world has existed tens of thousands of years. Now today we'd say what? Billions, Millions, billions right? Okay. And Many who profess to believe the Bible record are at a loss to account for the wonderful things which are found in the earth with the view that creation week was only seven literal days and that the world is now only about 6,000 years old. So you can see the problem, right? What we're going to look at, we're going to begin looking at it uh, in this presentation. We'll continue tomorrow. 
uh, and then we'll be looking at other evidences of creation. But we want to look at the very science now that undergirds the biblical and spirit of prophecy assertions about the young age of the earth, the young age of creation, if you will. Look what she says, though, about what happens to many Christians. These to free themselves of difficulties thrown in their way by infidel geologists adopt the view that the six days of creation were six vast indefinite periods. And the day of God's rest was another indefinite period. Making what? Senseless the fourth commandment of God's holy law. Some eagerly receive this position for it destroys the, fourth of the, the force of the fourth commandment and they feel a freedom from its claims upon them. Just like we were hearing last night, right? So let's look at geology, creation, and the flood. And I want to suggest to you that you can begin a discussion like this by making, I believe, a true charge. You see, evolutionists in general say that Christians are leaving their reason at the door. They don't come in and intelligently look at the evidence. They say, if you're going to intelligently look at the evidence, you have to believe the earth is millions of years old. But I would like to suggest to you that there is plenty of evidence to suggest that those who say it's so obvious that things have existed millions, billions of years are actually not being intellectually honest themselves. Because there's plenty of evidence that the earth is much younger than what conventional geologists claim. And you might say, well, this sounds like you're encouraging us to be adversarial. No, actually quite the contrary. Uh, when we've done creation seminars, we target those creation seminars to believers. We say this is a program in our community for people that want reasons for their faith, science and Bible, reasons for their faith that they can share, to be able to give a defense of the hope that's in them. And uh, who comes out to those meetings? There'll be people, if you do a meeting like that in your church, there will be Christians from other churches or who have no church affiliation who will come because they're concerned about this issue. Homeschool families that are concerned about this issue that come to your church. If you're getting ready to do an evangelistic series to do a creation seminar, the first time I did this, we did a creation seminar the week before an evangelistic series, in the very same church venue where we were going to hold the evangelistic meetings. And we had people coming through those doors of our church that we'd never seen before, had never come for anything else. We've been running health programs and other things. And we met new people. We were advertising in the community. We are advertising it on Christian radio. And people come out. There's a lot of interest in this subject. And some of those people came to the evangelistic meetings. So the geologists want to talk mostly about these radiometric dating methods. And uh, I want to just look very briefly at an example of this and uh, then highlight for you other things in geology. Because of course in Ellen White's day, these radiometric clocks, so to speak, were not an issue. 
but there were plenty of other issues. And uh, today, many people will say, well, the rocks have been dated so old. The fossils have been dated for so many you know, millions or billions of years. Well, one of the uh, individuals that allowed us to copy their materials and put them on the, the uh, CD is Mike Riddle. Um, to my knowledge, Mike really is not have any real strong science background. But he was passionate about this subject, got involved with it. He's uh, actively teaching and does a very nice job of making many presentations. He used to work for the Institute for Creation Research. Now he's with a ministry, I think, called Answers in Genesis. Some of these people kind of move around to different evangelical creation organizations. But I think that's Mike's current affiliation. Um, so some slides from him dealing with carbon-14. Carbon-14 is actually the only radiometric method that actually looks at something in the fossil itself or in the bone itself or whatever you're talking about. All the other methods are dating the rock around the fossil. And uh, radiometric dating with carbon-14 even the experts say it can only reliably date, you know, maybe 50, 60,000 years, somewhere in that range. So this is not giving, this cannot give you billions and billions of years. So, and it's the, actually the only one, like I said, that's in the tissues of the fossils. Well, I don't want to give you a, a chemistry review here, but uh, basically radiometric dating is simply based on the properties of the different atoms that are being studied. So with carbon, you're talking about carbon-14. And uh, it's often called radiocarbon. There's different types of carbon that are illustrated here. But uh, carbon-14 is unstable. Stable carbon has six protons and six neutrons. If some of you remember from basic chemistry, you add those up, that gives you the atomic mass, kind of the weight of the molecule. And uh, the carbon-14 is going to be heavier. You see it illustrated here. So eight neutrons, six protons. Well, over time, this radioactive carbon decays. It gives off protons. Actually, the proton is uh, changed by, I'm not going to go into all the detail about it, converted into carbon to nitrogen. But the interesting thing is this process takes a certain time for half of the carbon-14 to turn, uh, to decay away. And that period of time is 57 30 years, 5,730 years. So if you take a sample, at time zero it has this much carbon-14 in it. When half of that carbon-14 has changed to nitrogen-14, you know it's been 5,700 years. And uh, these radiometric clocks seem to be very consistent. Their decay rates seem to be very consistent. And so people say, well, if we know the rate of decay 
and we see how much carbon-14 is there, we can extrapolate back and tell you how much carbon-14 was in the original and therefore we know how old it is. See, carbon-14 is being created by cosmic rays interacting with nitrogen in the atmosphere, forms this carbon-14 and then that carbon-14 is incorporated into carbon dioxide and it's taken up by living creatures. So you've got the nitrogen being converted to this radioactive carbon and then ultimately decaying over 5,730 years, half of it decaying into nitrogen. Every 5,730 years, half of it decays. You see how that works? What the problem with all this is, is how do you know how much carbon-14 was there to begin with? It's all based on assumptions. And uh, once a plant or animal starts to die, it's not incorporating any more new carbon-14. And then the clock, so to speak, starts and that carbon-14 decays. So how do you know how old something is? Well, you say we know the half-life. It looks like it's constant. It looks like things like pressure and things in the environment don't change it substantially. But how do you know how much carbon-14 was originally in the living creature that's now been fossilized? And see, this is where the real problem lies. So let's look at an illustration of this. You come into this room. Let's say you came into this room and you see a candle that's burning. Let's say it's maybe this high and it's burning and you're watching how long it takes for some of that candle to burn down. You figure so much is burning per hour. How long has the candle been burning? Yeah, you don't know how big the candle was when it started burning, right? And so what the point is, is that you can't tell how old something is if the assumptions are wrong about how much carbon-14 was originally in the organism. And here's the question. If we look at the biblical description of creation, would we have expected that the ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14, which by the way right now is like a trillion to one, for every trillion molecules of carbon-12, you have one of carbon-14. Would we expect things to have been different in the early Earth? Well, let's just look. What would be different? Well, were there as many cosmic rays that were penetrating the Earth's atmosphere to make carbon-14? What is the picture of the Earth before the flood? very different atmosphere. There was waters above, separated from the waters below in the original creation. There was no rain. So what does that look like? You know, was there a surrounding of water vapor or something? Was there an even climate, a climate throughout the earth because of kind of a greenhouse effect? Could cosmic rays not penetrate as well? If that would happen, then what would happen to the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere? There'd be very little or not, maybe none or very small amounts. So then a living organism would have little of this carbon-14. If you interpret it as having a lot more like there is in the atmosphere today, you'd think it was very much older than it was. Do you see how that would work? 
Now there's other things that can affect the carbon-14, the Earth's magnetic field, which has to do with um, cosmic radiation as well. The CO2 levels in the atmosphere, would they have been similar or different? Was there more vegetation, more plant life or less? What would that, how would that affect carbon dioxide levels? And then what about the flood itself? What I'm trying to help us see is that all of these radiometric dating methods, and I, we just looked at one example, are based on presuppositions. Now, there's some other problems with carbon dating, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but um, Dr. Jensen, who's here, uh, you may want to talk with her about this, but it's very interesting because carbon-14 is detected in many things that for other reasons people would date to millions of years old, whereas we shouldn't find any in anything that's over 60,000 years old. So, I'm suggesting to you, if people who embrace an evolutionary viewpoint were intellectually honest, they would be willing to look at other geologic clocks, many of which do not support their assumptions, rather than clinging to things that fit their assumptions and that are based on conjecture. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's look at some geologic clocks that most people in evolutionary circles don't talk about. How about erosion? How about erosion? If the Earth is really millions and billions of years old, how do we have, how do we see what we see? You know, there's still these fossil layers on the Earth. Do you realize that? How are they, why are they still there even? I mean, look at the example of the Rockies. They're being uplifted at 100 to 1,000 centimeters every 1,000 years, but they're not changing in elevation, so the erosion rate must be matching the uplift rate, right? Well, if that's been going on for 70 million years, what would we see? Would we see fossil layers? Do you see the problem? Because if things are being uplifted and eroded, and that's why we see the things that we see today, why do you still have the geologic column observable on mountains? What about Mount Everest? It's thought to be 50 million years old. But look at the erosion rate that we observe today of the Himalayas, about 200 centimeters every 1,000 years. And look at this. If you figure this out for 50 million years, this would be 50,000 vertical meters of erosion. How tall is Mount Everest? It's not 50,000 meters, not anywhere close. But it's covered by this Ordovician limestone, which is supposedly this, you know, millions of year ancient limestone. How is it there? Do, do you see that there are all kinds of evidences in geology that suggest that these time periods that are so well accepted are simply not accurate. 
We're going to look tomorrow at some very compelling things about fossils and then at arguments from design, some very compelling things, I believe, that cause us to take note that a better explanation for life on this planet is found in the Genesis account than there is provided in evolutionary science. So we've laid a framework. It's relevant. It's cutting edge in our church today. We need to be advocates for it. And we'll be giving you more evidence tomorrow that looks at science and how it supports a biblical worldview. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you continue to give us evidence that we've not followed cunningly devised fables by embracing the truth of your word. And although it always seems whenever we open the Bible, whenever we start to open science, whenever we put the two of them together, we're just scratching the surface. But even now as we're looking at this, your truth is coming through more clearly that you've called us at this time to advocate for biblical truth, to make our voice known, to stand up for, for your principles, and to show people that there's evidence supporting your Genesis account of creation. Give us greater ability to do that as a result of our experience here this weekend. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.